Hello, everybody, and welcome to Killer Serials. I'm Tony Jones. This is Ryan Parker. Hey, and we're a couple dudes with PhDs in theology who talk about television and sometimes put a blanket over our heads. You got a blanket over you your don't. head, Ryan? You don't. <laughs> That's because I bought a good mic. Yeah, I have a good <laughs> mic, too. We'll get a sponsor. Maybe they can send me a mic. <laughs> Maybe we should get a blanket sponsor. You think? Um, or or we could just do an expedited version of this podcast and be done in five minutes. <laughs> Before, How hot is it there in L.A. for you to have a blanket over your, over your head? Well, thankfully today it's a rainy 60 degrees. So, nice. you know, it could be worse. Well, Ryan, here we are at the end of season one of Rectify. We're going uh, week by week, episode by episode. This is our sixth week and our sixth episode of Rectify. Jacob's Ladder closes out season one, also known in uh, current TV parlance as episode 106. All right. The, you know, last episode ended with Daniel choking out Teddy Jr. And this episode begins with Teddy Jr. Uh, unconscious on the ground of the tire store. Yeah. With coffee grounds poured over his uh, butt and giving a new <laughs> giving a new meaning to the term you have coffee stains in your underwear. Right. He literally has stains in, he literally has stains in his pants and pants is wash, his ankles. and is yeah, is washing them out uh, later and scrubbing them out just a little bit later in the episode. So we don't know what happened. Nor do we know why Teddy doesn't immediately call the cops and have Daniel arrested. And, and it's, it's a huge unresolved issue as, this, as season one comes to an end. What? I, I really, I don't have an answer for this. This is not a rhetorical question. I really don't know what to make of that. And I'm, I'm wondering what you made of it. I agree. I, I want to take a bigger view. This isn't, I, I was uh, intrigued, enthralled with the episode. It's not my favorite episode of the first season. It's a it's a puzzling episode, and I think that's the first um, example of that. I, I think there's some bigger questions lingering. But yeah, I mean, as we had with uh, as we learned in our conversation a couple of weeks ago with with Michael Fuller, who said that. For him, Teddy Jr. is kind of like this sneaky, interesting character. I think it's just made even more so now. Um, to your question, I don't have an answer to that question. But also in this episode, we see something happening between he and Tawny where there seems to be a bridge building between them. Obviously, we still don't know why Tawny is so anxious around her husband. But she also admits, uh, obviously she doesn't know what happened to Teddy Jr. the night before, but it's funny that he has that experience. He's been doubting Daniel's quote-unquote faith for the last couple of episodes, and then all of a sudden Tawny says, I'm not sure that the baptism was such a good idea. Yeah, there there, there is a rapprochement between Tawny and Teddy, which it's, it's, you know, I find it a little bit beautiful. It's like, 
a little bit heartbreakingly beautiful to see it happen between the two of them. I think that Tawny has obviously become a bit disillusioned with Daniel. Like he's a lot weirder of a dude than she thought. And his, his conversion experience, quote unquote, was not necessarily the straight line from sinfulness to salvation that she thought it was going to be when he got baptized for her to admit that to Teddy was a very, you know, it was obviously humbling because he had been skeptical of the baptism and then she had gone through with it. um, And now she's basically admitting to him something that I think puts her in a very vulnerable position with him. And, and yeah, you do see them kind of, it's, it's almost like they're learning to appreciate the other in ways that they had taken for granted before. And she's uh, just the roller coaster of her emotions throughout this first season, right? Of being intrigued with or concerned for Daniel, being excited for him and this, I, we could say, new spiritual journey. And then to all of a sudden be kind of at the depths of doubt or, or disbelief in him. She's really had kind of a dynamic first, you know, first season. But Tony, I want to know, what do you think about this? Like I said before, I, this is an interesting episode to me. Obviously a huge cliffhanger at the end that we can get to. But I, I, I'm still kind of struggling to wrap my head around, is this the, how, how to refer to this, is this the height or the depth of Daniel's struggle to reintegrate into society? This feels like such a seeking episode i i don't think for a lot of characters yeah yeah i think you're exactly right i mean i do want to just before we get to that i want to say like there are a couple other weird loose ends like the gift that he needs the christmas wrapping paper for where for whom is that he leaves it in amantha's car we don't know anything about that It, it it seems to be so important at the beginning of the episode that he asks his mother for wrapping paper. He's got this gift. And then he leaves it in Amantha's car, which is odd. The the um, the interaction he has with Chet, the owner of the bookstore, is beautiful, but also weird. And yes. I don't know quite how it fits in with everything else that's happening, other than that he has a very human connection with somebody else who seems to understand his, you know, they, they're on the same wavelength regarding being an kind outsider of like, a bit. Yeah. And yeah, like, because Chet is probably gay, maybe. Am I reading the tea leaves right on that? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. And that they kind of share a love of literature and they talk about, um, you know, farce and sadness, which is better, well, I think. There's a great literary tradition in the South, but I mean, let's just be honest. It's not everybody owns a bookstore. There aren't a ton of bookstores on every corner. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So he he's obviously uh, somewhat a, a, of an outsider just by virtue of his, as you said, just his interests. Um, and I think, Tony, I think that's all part of that question I have is, we talk about reintegration in the first five episodes, and we've talked about the physical side of that, of the nearsightedness, 
of falling asleep, of exploring space and time. But this seems to be something much deeper spiritually or philosophically. And I guess that's what I meant about like height or depth. Is this the is this the hardest part for him? Right. It's not. I it's mean, not the physical stuff. Yeah. It's not the time. It's it's this other kind of ontological. You know, who like who am I? Where am I? Not just physically or in time. Right. Yes. He he seems to be hitting almost a crisis point of can he make it on the outside. And, and it comes up in a couple different ways. I mean, one is obviously the episode begins, there's like a cherry bomb in a mailbox. And that gets the whole family system talking about whether he should really stick around or not. Um, and they start to think, of, they start to talk about him leaving, going somewhere else. Amantha offers to take him to Atlanta. Janet is about to tell him he needs to leave and instead chickens out and asks him to help her remodel the kitchen, which is another one of, dude, one of the most interesting scenes is Daniel starts to cry for the first time in the seven days since he's been released from prison. And his mother does not walk over and comfort him. She just yeah. stands there with her coffee mug. I'm like, I'm thinking about the the direction of that, you know, uh, why, why Absolutely. they would, yeah. oh my gosh. I'm like, go hug him for God's sake. Go hug your son who's crying. Yep. He's, he's, I Don't think let it's him go. the depth. I think it's the depth, Ryan. Yeah, well, I, yeah, think, I, I, I know it is. I, yeah, I think it is. I think, um, you know, and I was, I took some notes in the dialogue too. Um, you know, he, he says all these, like, especially the conversation he has with his attorney, right? With the man. John Stern. Yeah. That, yeah, no, John. that, that monologue he has with John Stern. I, I want to play a part of it here. Yeah. Let's listen to it. Hey, Daniel. Come on in. Well, where's Amanda? Uh, she's doing laundry. Are you doing okay? With things? I don't think so, John. I don't think so. That's not... That's normal. What is? Not doing okay. Considering everything. Why don't you come in? Well, it shocked me to find you here. You know, just not used to contemplating all the variables one might encounter. I mean, there were variables inside, but it wasn't like out here where it's... You know, and if you don't have the, the years of experience, it's the there isn't the, the repetition of everyday living to make things mundane because because mundane is is calming and soothing mundane isn't out of the ordinary and when everything 
is out of the ordinary. It can't be too much sometimes, you know? Like finding you behind this door when I didn't even consider there could be somebody else behind this door but my sister. Your mind puts it together, of course, but I mean, even just the door opening is still very unreal. Does that make sense? Of course. I know it does. Okay. Tony, that's a fascinating conversation perspective that Daniel brings where there's a um a hint that there's a certain level of comfort with the routine of his previous life. And that if we're talking about this being the depths of his ability to reintegrate into society, it's just the sheer chaos of, as he says, contemplating all the variables, thinking I'm going to see Amantha. Amantha will answer that door. What happens when she doesn't answer that door, right? And so I, I think that is, and I took a couple of other notes about some of his comments. You know, he says throughout the episode, I don't know what to do. I don't believe in anything, right? I mean, this to me is a a massive existential crisis for him. I, I, it's come to this fruition, well, right? We, uh, we've okay, built to I this. totally agree. I, I first even want to give this little shout out to the fact that we talked you, you know, you and I talked about this um, with the writers when we had them on. This is this is astounding. Th- this conversation where John Stern is standing in the open doorway of Amantha's brand new apartment, having talked to her about getting a gun to to protect herself, and and I'm just I just want to say there are not many TV shows that would allow this long of a kind of monologue. A statement from a character like this because it, it's it's delivered almost flat. I mean, he's almost without affect or emotion as he says this. It's like he's deadened inside. And here's what yeah. it made me think. You know, I think I said an episode or two ago that it seems to me like Janet, uh, Daniel's mother, is a cipher. In almost every scene she's in, she's non-existent. She doesn't bring any force to the scene. She's She just like she sucks the energy out of a scene. She, she's nobody. She's nowhere. She's nothing. I'm starting to think that about Daniel now. Like he's so aimless. You know, he's so without purpose. He had, it seemed like he had, maybe he had a purpose when he was in his cell. At least he had a, a purpose in his relationship with Kerwin, which I know we'll get to, especially next week. He, he, when he says this, it, it's not like even there's an answer. And John Stern responds to him by saying, you know, like, this is normal. It's, it's okay. I, he, you know, are you okay? I don't think so. That's not. It's normal. What is, what's normal? Not doing okay is normal. But Daniel, yeah. I don't know that those words of comfort or consolation are of any help to Daniel. I I do think he is at the depth and he is lacking purpose and direction on the outside. And this, this quote that you just played is so telling where he just doesn't, 
um, he, nothing, everything is extraordinary. There is no ordinary, there is no mundane after 18 and a half years in solitary confinement on death row. Tony, I like how you, at one, on one level, it could seem dismissive to say that Daniel doesn't have a presence, right? Or to question what that presence is. But I also think it's a very wise use of this character in a series because it's almost like a black hole, right? Like, you know it by its effect on what's around it. And like using Daniel to explore other relationships while also I think the show does, as we've talked about, does a phenomenal job of having us consider incarceration and its effect on communities and individuals, but using this newly released person to explore Southern life, life in a small Southern town, family relationships, religion, right? Justice, all these things. And so I wouldn't have said, I don't think you would have made that comment about Daniel until now, right? I think we've built to this and it's going to be really uh, interesting to see where they turn because we are at a real turning point. It feels like with this, with this ending and kind of jump ahead, you know, at the end of the episode, we find Daniel uh, almost beat to death by Hannah's brother and some of his thug friends and Daniel's being sent off to hospital uh, in an ambulance. You know, okay. So, I, yeah. And we've had, and I, as you've said, we've had, and we've also had the pipe bomb uh, earlier. Yeah. And so it's really, are, is he going to leave town? Uh, are the local authorities going to protect this family, this, and this man? Um, or will it still be kind of open season on him, okay. right? How he, does Teddy does, Jr. He, he react not, now? He, yeah, he not only does not leave town, he goes to the worst possible place oh, he could the, go to, which is yeah. to Hannah's grave. Now, yeah. we've already seen him go uh, a week ago to Hannah's house and peeping Tom in her window at night before he got picked up by the goat man. And by the way, there's, you know, he sees the goat statue again, uh, in this episode, but now it's covered That's with right. vines and in a, in the, in a tree grove instead of out in the middle of a field, which makes me think that his whole thing with the goat man was a dream sequence because why would that goat statue look so different and be differently situated now in this episode when he goes out with a mantha to the cow pasture? You don't think it was just a different angle? It's possible, but I mean, it was yeah. not, it, it went from no vines on it to vines on it. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it could have been, yeah. it came at it from a different no, angle, a, but yeah, it, it's definitely leaves you with the impression that the Goatman episode could have been uh, a dream sequence. Of course. Okay, but he goes to the worst possible place he could go to. It's almost like he wants to get beat up. It's almost like he wants to get punished for his sins. And well, he I talked think, to, he, yeah. he said almost as much to Amantha, right? Yes. In that scene yes. that you talk about where they're walking through the pecan grove where he says, you know, I, I got to feeling guilty. I think even if he did not kill Hannah, he feels like he is responsible for her death somehow, which is probably Absolutely. why he confessed. And Conf- we do absolutely. hear the odd. 
we do hear the audio of his confession because John Stern is playing it as he's listening back through the evidence. Well, and there's some nuggets throughout, right? To to think this is going to be a and it's going to be fascinating to see this case unfold because there are those seeds, right? That he's probably innocent of her murder, right? Because he makes that comment that she she looked so alive the last time he saw her. Yeah. And she felt alive. Okay. And there are some other underlying issues that have been made clear. For one thing, it's not just Daniel who sticks out in this town. It's Daniel's whole family. I mean, they're they're well-to-do, but they're not church-going people, and they have a Jewish lawyer from out of state. So that kind of sets them apart in the town a little bit. Hannah's family, we've known from just glimpses inside her house is from the like probably literally the other side of the tracks. Okay, how about that? How about that collection of figurines that her mom's I mean, got going on? Yeah, so wow. they live in like almost a shack, and the brother comes in, but the mom has kept Hannah's room with all these dolls and figurines in this oddly museum-like um, uh, environment. But then there's also when it comes to the beating of Daniel in the. Uh, cemetery, I could not help think of, and not to say that that kind of beating wouldn't have happened anywhere, no matter where this was or whatever, but you you don't see something like that set in the Deep South without thinking of the history of lynching in the American South and the history of scapegoating, you know, this idea, this both anthropological and theological idea that That's right. when things go wrong, when things are bad, you you pin the blame on an individual victim, and then you punish that victim on behalf of the community. This is you know this very famous scapegoating um, a theory that was developed in the 20th century by Rene Girard. I'm very very fond of it. But it does say that, you know, what, what happens is all of the pent up anger and bloodlust of the community is put on to a, a single victim, whether that victim be innocent or guilty. Usually the victim has some bit of guilt, but they take on all the guilt of the community. And then it's like a pressure release valve when that, when that scapegoat is punished. For the sins of the world, basically. Um, and it seems to me like that's what Daniel is doing, especially because there have all, already been intimations, even back to the first episode, that, you know, oh, Hannah was sleeping around with all sorts of guys. And yeah, I, you know, I, I slept with her. And, um, you know, I know a bunch of other guys who did too. Da- Daniel was just one of the guys who slept with her. But no one's going to confront that truth of, of Hannah's past. They're just going to look for a guilty party and punish that guilty party. Like that's how Hannah's brother lives with himself. Her brother is part of that group that beats Daniel. And then the rest of them walk off. He stays, urinates on. Takes off his mask. Daniel and takes off his mask so that Daniel can see him. Do you feel like, when when that scene ended, did you feel like okay that pressure release valve it, it, that's been released, uh, and that's what he needed to do, or do you feel like this is just potentially the first of many 
It seems well. Here, here's the thing. Here's the thing about Gerard's scapegoating theory, and why he converted to Christianity late in his life. He he's like the scape scapegoating doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know, it works. It's it's a temporary pressure release valve, but violence does not solve society's problems. So the problems of the Deep South or the problem of um, an innocent man incarcerated for 18 and a half years for a crime he didn't commit or the problem of a young girl, high school uh, girl murdered, these will not be solved by somebody getting the shit beat out of him in a cemetery or even if they would have literally strung him up and hung him from a tree in the cemetery that still would not have solved the problem even though right. we're 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 fooled into believing that the violence will solve the problem it never actually solves the problem i mean scapegoating doesn't ultimately work it's a bankrupt system but we keep doing it well tony let's let's talk about the most extreme form of that uh, which is the state sanctioned violence of capital punishment and we see that here on full display with Kerwin's execution, right? And I think one of the more touching scenes of any series I've seen recently, um, the flashback in this episode, and there haven't been many, but they've frequently involved the friendship between Daniel and Kerwin when they're on death row. Uh, and Kerwin is leaving and he asks the guards if he can stop and see his friend. And I thought it was just incredible that that's the word he used yeah. to yeah. see my friend. And I, I, I don't know any, we, we can't recount this. We should just play Kerwin's final words to Daniel. Yeah. Let's listen to those. Need to go. Daniel. Daniel. Daniel, I I need to say something to my friend. Doesn't look like he wants to speak to you. I just need a moment. Need to go. Please. Look at me. Look at me, brother. Daniel. I know he didn't do it. How do you know? Because I know you. Because I know you. Because I know you. We have to go. Bye, brother. I mean, what do you think, Tony? Oh what do my you gosh, think? it's it's so intense. Um, 
And, you know, it does make you think of, uh, for him to say, it's because I know you, I, I know you. That's why he knows he's innocent. Well, he, he knows this, he knows this man because they've talked through a great, you know, in two solitary confinement cells. Um, it's no, it's so intense. And you know, that Kerwin's being led off to his own execution. Um, I think, you know, part of it, I wonder what part of Daniel died with Kerwin because, you know, part of me saying Daniel at this point in the show seems a bit like a cipher. Like he's doesn't, he's, he's not really there. He's got these very vacant eyes He's not that way in the flashbacks in the cell. This is what I'm saying. I feel like in the cell he has purpose. You know, he he's 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 reading Dante and and Plato, and he goes back home, and we see him just playing video games. You know what I'm saying? He's he he has this purpose when he's on death row that in the seven days since he's left death row he seems to lack, and I wonder how. It, it'll be fascinating to see how Kerwin's death affects him. I think it will, I, my guess is that it will yeah. affect him very deeply. And I'll also say that, I mean, you've probably heard this too, but a lot of people uh, who've seen, you know, gone to the executions of criminals who've like murdered somebody in their family, they don't walk out of the of the death chamber feeling like, oh, okay, now I'm good. I've been vindicated because my sister's killer is now dead. You know, they maybe feel like justice has been done, but I, in interviews that I've read, I, I don't think they feel a great sense of like, now everything's right with the world. Yeah. That's what I was going to say, Tony. I feel like when, when I brought making that transition right from the scapegoat mechanism to execution, is that it doesn't solve anything, right? It and you look at there's a film I you know I don't want to uh, distract people from this amazing series too much, but there's a wonderful film that kind of came and went last year called Clemency, which is is kind of a it's a execution narrative told through the perspective of a warden who is slowly disintegrating because of the effects of overseeing all of these deaths. And the psychological impact it has, the spiritual impact it has on, on the people who are around it, the guards, right, the chaplain, the warden. Um, but you, I, I, the one thing that I've appreciated so much about this series, not just the the spiritual window it's giving us into incarceration, but the way in which those scenes have been shot in each of the flashbacks, and the way that the camera moves with Kerwin as he as he comes out of his cell and you just, you know, right. The second you see it, you're like, he's, he's done. He's going to, it's time. Um, and then following him down the hall. And then obviously at the end of the episode, when I, the last words, right. What are the last words of the episode? All clear. Remind me. Oh yeah. All clear. Yeah. When they're, when they do that overhead shot of the two cells from solitary. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, when I, I obviously, you know, not to be too cheeky, nothing is clear about any of this, right? Nothing is clear about uh, within Daniel. Nothing is clear about the situation, his legal situation. Nothing's clear about this whole practice of of execution. 
Um, but yeah, just the way in which for the last several minutes or few minutes of that of that season, um, we have this stunning overhead shot of one inmate cleaning out Kerwin's cell and and Daniel curling up in the fetal position. Um, yeah, yeah, remarkable stuff. And you know, I'm excited to see where this goes. Uh, we're we are being very diligent about our one episode a week, but we can't tell people that we have a special guest next week. Speaking of Kerwin, that's right, that's right. We have uh, Johnny Ray Gill, the actor who plays Kerwin, is going to join us next week to discuss this episode and episode two zero one, and kind of the whole story arc of the first season, moving into the second season. I. I, yeah, I cannot wait to talk to him. Yeah, uh, it's a small character in terms of the narrative, but a powerful one, you yeah. know, um, and and such a sweet but also insightful performance on his part. So it'll be fun to chat with him. Another great episode in a great TV show, and I'm so glad we're doing it. Uh, um, so everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode and. Until next like, week, subscribe, like, subscribe, share. rate, share, and we will talk to you about Rectify 201 next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Mm-hmm.